90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, what's up, nerd? <laughs> uh, nothing dork, just sitting here, chilling. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing this week? Uh, wonderful. We're finally getting rain, um, which is much needed in our mega drought, which I'm sure will continue, but it's a nice respite. Um, I'm sure you guys have plenty of rain up there, though. We do, and it's actually raining as we're recording this, <laughs> uh, but it has been pretty nice over the last week. In fact, we had our first really nice weekend where you wanted to kind of go outside and do things and it's nice and sunny and it was just really pleasant. Um, yes, it was the same thing here. As you can imagine, I know you're probably sadly missing it, but um, it's the heart of severe weather season here. And so every time it's raining, we start to think about severe weather. And that's actually what I did this week was talk to um, eight-year-olds about Girl Scouts, about severe weather. And it was really scary because <laughs> I'm, <used to, laughs> I'm, I'm used to dealing with, you know, 20-year-olds. And so <laughs> it turns out eight-year-old girls love, love, love to draw pictures of hail and tornadoes and hurricanes. <laughs> and it was really fun. <laughs> Well, that's great. I mean, doing that out, kind of outreach and education stuff, I know we're going to talk about it in the future, and it's always a lot of fun, and you end up learning a lot from doing it. Oh, exactly. Like, I was terrified to do it, and I came away super stoked. But doing that, I mean, you just mentioned it's been pretty nice outside up there. It's got me thinking, too, a lot about summertime, and I'm going to be spending my entire summer outside, and hopefully a lot of other people are, too. I know you'll probably get away from your computer. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. And, well, <laughs> we did go on a little uh, little trip this weekend out to one of the local state parks, and that was that was a lot of fun. But yes, even during the summer, uh, I do say, you know, a relatively, a little bit darker shade of pasty white, uh, but that's about it. Oh, uh, yep. Um, I hear you there, too. Um, I, I'm spending my entire summer outside because, as you know, I teach the Summer Field Academy for our university. And then we're turning around and my best friend and I are going to take our three kids, combined three children, on a camping trip for three weeks. And that's a wow. lot of... yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of work, but as I've been planning this, um, so we go camping, we're going to go all the way up to Mount Rainier and sort of camp our way down through California and Oregon and then through Nevada and come back to Oklahoma. But I'm also reading a book now about kids being outside and it's sort of a, since my son is five years old, about to turn six, it's really a big deal of mine now is to understand how kids interact with nature and how what we can do to make more kids interact with nature or more computer programmers interact with nature right <laughs> <laughs> oh that's so true you guys can't just model nature and then <laughs> and live off of that <laughs> um, <laughs> so there are some really great books about this which i know seems counterintuitive that instead of just going out into nature i read books about nature but <laughs> As you said, I am a nerd. Um, and they actually talk about not just kids getting outside, but adults too. There's actually a lot of really in-depth scientific study about the benefits of nature, both for kids and adults. And as a society, as we move towards less and less outdoor time and more and more disconnect with nature, it's having some really detrimental effects on our health, on our productivity, and on our creativity, most importantly. Yeah, I noticed in the uh, in the show notes that you had put together, uh, you're saying this was nature deficit disorder. That's right. So one of the books that um, I first read is called Last Child in the Woods, and I bought it at an outdoor store appropriately. <laughs> um, and it's by <laughs> Richard Louvre, and he's also written a book called The Nature Principle, which is about adults. And he's coined this term nature deficit disorder, and Last Child in the Woods is about saving our children from nature deficit disorder. And then his newer book, The Nature Principle, is about saving adults from nature deficit disorder. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Because we don't play outside as much as, well, kids now don't play outside as much as we did when we were little. And certainly not as much as, like, our parents did when they were little. 
and it's affecting all parts of children's lives. I mean, we've all heard about the childhood obesity epidemic, which has a lot to do with staying indoors and sitting in front of computer screens and not going outside like we did when we were little or our parents did when they were little. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really important, especially as a geoscientist, for us to get out <laughs> and look at the world, like you said, that we're modeling or that we're studying. And it's really easy to not do that because your inbox is piled up with 30 unread emails. <laughs> and you have abstracts to submit and papers to write. And, you know, the list goes on. Yes, exactly. Um I personally have made a commitment to ignore all my technology, uh, much to John's dismay. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't have my phone giving notifications when I get emails. I have set times during the day where I check my email because I don't want to be tied to it. And that brings me to the next book that I'm reading because I'm a nerd. And um, if anyone has kids that's listening or is younger than I am, maybe you guys have watched Dinosaur Train. Are you familiar with this show on PBS, John? I am not familiar with this show, but it sounds pretty great. It's amazing. Um, and so there's a paleontologist that hosts it, and his name is Dr. Scott. And so Dr. Scott tells you about the dinosaurs you're going to watch, and Dinosaur Train is highly entertaining. I absolutely love it. It's on Netflix. Totally worth it. But Dr. Scott just wrote a book. His name is Dr. Scott Sampson. He works at the Museum of Natural History in Denver, and it's called How to Raise a Wild Child. And it is so awesome because he builds on Richard Lou's principles um, about nature deficit disorder and like what we're doing to our children by not getting outside. But he even says in here that he's guilty of not doing it too for that very same reason you just mentioned. He says, as geoscientist, he said, I'm really bad about it too, even though he's a paleontologist. Now he gets bogged down in you know, the day-to-day -day drudgery of emails and, you know, stuff he's got to sift through and papers to write, and he forgets to go outside and do the whole thing he fell in love with geosciences is, is just being outside. Yeah, and I will say that being outside, it gives you a really nice chance to put your thoughts together. And just this week, you know, it's finals week here at Penn State, and a lot of places were hosting a study space for the undergraduate students. And so I was sitting as a host in one of those spaces, basically making sure that there was coffee and cookies and that kind of thing. <laughs> and it was incredibly quiet. And I had turned off my internet on the computer. And though this is not outside, I realized that that was the first time in a long time that I was able to actually think and try to, you know, put some pieces together. And I thought, wow, it'd be really nice, say, this last weekend when we were out at the park to have maybe brought a book and just sat outside and really concentrated and enjoyed it. Exactly. That's exactly what I think a lot of people are lacking. Um, Dr. Scott's book talks a lot about recent research, as do the other books. And a lot of what they say, and I love this, is that we don't let our children, and I, this is true for us too, we don't let ourselves be bored ever. Like we're so packed full of activities and being plugged in all the time and always interacting with something that we never have that time to be bored and to have like just sort of free thinking and the big deal that everyone points out, especially for children, young children, is that boredom fosters creativity. If you're bored, either you're going to sit there and you're going to be bored, or you're going to come up with something, whether that's playing Star Wars with a stick as a lightsaber like my kid does, <laughs> or, you know, you have to, you have to actually think. And no one does it anymore because we're so into this immediate gratification of either our electronics or our thousand different um, sports that we're running back and forth to or after school programs or anything like that. There's kids don't have time for unstructured free play and neither do adults. Just like you said, like you'd never realize that it hadn't been quiet for so long that you just had unstructured time. And I think that's brilliant and people don't think of it. They think they have to 
pack their kids' schedules with so much stuff or their schedule with so much stuff so that they never have to be bored and actually we're really doing harm by cramming all this in and not letting kids just sit there and live with their boredom. <laughs> right. And as an adult, I think one thing that would be important to keep in mind, and this is a little bit derived from the getting things done methodology, which it sounds like exactly what we're trying to avoid here. Right. <laughs> uh, but it's making sure that everything is out of your head. If you're thinking about, I need to do X, Y, and Z, you're not bored. You're thinking about what you need to do. You know, write that stuff down, get it out of your head, and then, you know, wait until you can talk to yourself and hear echo, 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 <laughs> and then you're ready, I think. Exactly. I mean, this is what we just talked about. This is why you have all these field notes or moleskins, so you can write these things down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and throw them into your backpack full of other notebooks and forget about them and just sit there with your own thoughts. Like, the answer to a lot of our problems lies in our ability to do this, I think. And that's what the scientific literature is starting to say, is that, you know, we are not allowing ourselves to become de-stressed, to become healthy or happier, to get inspiration by just sitting. And I think that's a really interesting thing, me being a somewhat helicopter parent trying to <laughs> break my bonds <laughs> of like making sure my kid has everything, is never unhappy or whatever. And I know a lot of parents do that, but we're actually doing a lot of harm by not just kicking our kids' butts out the door and saying, go play. I don't care if you're bored, which I know happened to me a lot as a kid. I'm sure it happened to you too. Right. And so I'm a little curious, what what do some of these books have to say about why maybe kids and adults, I'm sure, maybe they have slightly different motivations, uh, but why they don't spend more time outside and interacting with nature? So they do. They talk a lot about this. Um Besides the fact that we already talked about, you know, even us that are self-proclaimed nature lovers, you know, we get bogged down with these everyday activities and just don't make time for it. Um, a big thing is that we're scared. We're scared. Okay. I, <laughs> I know it sounds weird. Um, I saw this wonderful interview with this woman, uh, Lenore, I don't know how to say her last name, I'm sorry, Skenazy, I think, who is a founder of this movement called Free Range Kids. And her anecdote that I think sums up this scared thing is that she had bought the old Sesame Streets, like back when they first came on the air, when she was growing up, she had bought the DVDs of them for her children. And there was a warning that came on before the show played, saying that, you know, these kids are doing things that kids shouldn't do. And she thought, hmm. what? And it's because they showed kids playing, like, in vacant lots and in unstructured play spaces. And so I don't know if Interesting. it was... I know. I don't know if it was, like, a liability thing or what. And, you know, they're saying, don't do this, kids. Which is crazy. Like, that set her off. And she's like, that's ridiculous, you know? That's how we learn to do things. And she founded this thing called the Free Range Kids Movement, which is that, you know, it's more safe now to be a kid. And I found a lot of stats about this um, as well that says it's safer now to be a kid than any other time. And yet we never trust our kids to go outside and just do stuff. We're too scared about them falling and hurting themselves if they're climbing a tree. Or, you know, what if, what if, heaven forbid, they see a snake? Right. Or they get stung by a bee? Or something like that. And we get so scared about all those interactions, which, you know me, John, I'm really scared of bears. <laughs> so. it, it's definitely tried carried uh, several <laughs> cans of bear spray on your account in the past. Uh, that is true. And so, I mean, you know, I, I'm scared of that too but you know if i ever well i have seen a bear in nature and you know what nothing happened it wasn't a big deal <laughs> the bear was probably more scared of me than i was of it which is exactly what happened he saw me he stood up he ran away you know but yeah. you get that stuff stuck in your head and of course you're scared for your little kids because that's your entire life um but we need to get over it 
because we're not teaching our kids anything. If they can't fail now, whether little, if they can't fall out of a tree and get hurt and understand, oh, that branch was too small for me to step on, I won't do that next time. If they don't have those experiences, when they fail as an adult, they're going to do what I see college students doing now, and probably you do too, and they play this awful, (laughs) awful entitlement game where, you know, they're entitled to do well, and it's your fault if they don't, not their own fault. And kids are missing out on those sort of lessons by us trying to protect them. Right. And just missing out on where you pick up a lot of common sense about how things and how the world works uh, by being out and solving problems that you've created for yourself. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's so true. You know, you get stuck up a tree. How are you going to get down now, kid? You know, (laughs) those are are really important things. I mean, you know, I've jumped too far from a tree. My husband's broken his clavicle before doing the same thing. You know, it just... It's stuff that we're getting a little bit overbearing and ridiculous about. And it's nice, you know, books like Dr. Sampson's book and Richard Lewis' book and a lot of this free-range kids movement are starting to say we're being ridiculous and we've gone too far into the overprotectiveness because our kids can't solve problems when they get grow up now. They can't think right, for I themselves. Mean, yeah, I mean, using your stuck-in-a-tree example, if – Several kids that are of that age, tree climbing age that I would imagine now, they get stuck up a tree, they're going to pull out their cell phone and call somebody. (laughs) Whereas when we were kids, there wouldn't have been a cell phone, Uh, you know, not quite two longs and a short for the house number days, but... Um, Yes, exactly. I think people can't even fathom not being connected anymore. You know, I I don't know a person that wouldn't feel lost without their phone. And much to many of my colleagues and my students despising me, I think, because I set my phone down and I don't look at it a lot of times, especially like when I get home at night. I'm like, nope, we're not going to do that, you know, and I'm not saying I'm Especially when we're trying to schedule the show, too. Yes. John John gets really (laughs) mad at me, too. But it is like I just can't stand that sort of like being connected all the time. And I'm probably like on the other end of I should probably pay a little bit more attention to it. But it just it's unbelievable to me. So you're not going to be wearing an Apple Watch is what you're telling me. (laughs) No, I'm going to pass. I'm going to pass that up. Although I did see a lot of pictures of people putting their Apple Watch on their cats. So that was intriguing. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I mean, I. Before we leave the idea of being scared, keeping us from going outside, I'll just say I agree that it probably applies to adults somewhat, too. I mean, I I have the same aversion to, say, rattlesnakes that you do to bears. And there have been multiple times when we've been in the field doing geology that you put your hand somewhere and start going around a corner and, well, there's a rattlesnake. And, yeah, it's a risk, but it didn't. it can't stop you from going out and doing your work. Exactly. So you have to get over it, and it is something that uh, could be difficult depending on how comfortable you are. And for some people, going scared may be as simple as they haven't had the experience of using campground toilets before. <laughs> it may not even be something wildlife. And for them, that's a completely unusual experience that they don't know what to expect. So I think there's an entire spectrum on there of being scared, and you just have to start where you're comfortable and keep expanding that boundary slowly. It's so true, and I'm so proud, and I've had this unusual experience as a professor at the university where I got my PhD because the, the students that I'm going to teach at field camp this summer, I've been with for three years now. I've taught them every year for three years, so we're pretty close, and I've made them camp. I know I've talked about this on the show. I've made them camp a lot on our field trips and they there was a large percentage of them that has never that have never done that and I know there was a lot of fear probably you know not fear for their lives but fear of the unknown (laughs) (laughs) and certainly I had people who had never peed in the woods before (laughs) and and like I feel really proud of them because they have come up to me you know and said stuff like this was the coolest thing I've never done this before I'm going to do it again. 
and that made it totally worth it. And, you know, I had, I had a lot of anxiety about it. I'm worried about them. I want them to be safe in the field, you know. I'm worried about my son, and when I take my students out, it's like, my son times 30, right? <laughs> and like, I want everyone to be safe. I don't want anything to be happen. But the benefits of going out and being somewhat self-sufficient in this unknown situation, in an unknown place, far outweigh those anxieties. And I hope that, you know, parents and people themselves can just suck it up and get over some of their fear because <laughs> the benefits of nature are way greater than those fears we may have yes something bad could happen all these books point that out i mean obviously if you have any common sense something bad could happen but something bad could happen in your house too you're not safe there either <laughs> so oh absolutely i mean any kind of freak accident that probably has a similar probability uh could happen anywhere i mean right. there are lots of buses in my town and crosswalks <laughs> and hopefully Neither the twain shall meet. Um. <laughs> right. So I can see being scared. And one thing that I would say is a factor, maybe more so for adults, uh, maybe not, is you come home from work, you've had a really long week, you're exhausted, you wake up at you know quarter to 10, and you say, McDonald's stopped serving breakfast in 45 minutes. <laughs> You go out and you get your breakfast, and all you want to do is relax and watch some show on Netflix. <laughs> oh, man. So how did you know that's what I did last weekend? Um, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And I'm trying to make this concerted effort with my child, and I only say this because I am that person as well. But it's like once you get over – your laziness and you just make yourself do it once it becomes a habit you will never want to go back to just sitting around in front of the tv because you wind up having so much fun and even if you're tired just going outside you get so much more energized than you do just sitting around watching netflix and you can always do that you know after you come in from <laughs> from outside and <laughs> put your kid to bed that's what we do now <laughs> but like right. um we built a uh we built a horseshoe pit in the backyard. And so now, you know, we get home and we're tired and our kid's like, let's go outside. And so we go outside and play horseshoes, you know, and it's a lot more relaxing than turning on the television. That's one of my other soapboxes is about TV, but I will skip that now. <laughs> but the laziness thing, you just have to make an effort, I think. Um, it's so much more calming and relaxing going outside, even if you just sit there just like you were talking about earlier. Absolutely. I mean, now that it's becoming nicer weather here, I get to walk home a lot more. And I really enjoy that time where I do get to just be outside, get a little bit of exercise. And in the past, uh, I, where I live now, I actually have basic cable that comes included, uh, which is a little unfortunate because at the previous location, I didn't. And so I was forced to not be addicted to any TV shows. And that was actually pretty great because like you said, it, it did make you look up, well, okay, what am I going to do this evening? Maybe I'll go for a walk downtown. Maybe even if it's something like that, that's not truly a nature experience, it is getting right. out, out of doors. Yes, exactly. That's the deal. Um, like I said, I am no shining example, but I'm just pointing these things out because I've been trying to make this concerted effort. And we got rid of our television service three years ago and haven't looked back. I mean, it's sad because we like to watch sports a lot, but we've really gotten over it. I mean, it's so much better just to go outside. And they point out a lot in these books and a lot of research says that it's not like it's not like this three week camping trip 12 states away that I'm going on. You don't even have to do that. You know, nature is your own backyard. Like that's what makes these kids become, you know, more focused in school. They have a lot less stress is just if every day you go outside in your own backyard and then you take occasional trips, Dr. Scott talks a lot about this, to truly wild places. So either like a nature park, like here in Norman, we have the George Sutton Wilderness and it's this trail, but a lot of the surrounding areas, you know, sort of wild area. So 
it's important to go to a variety of different outdoor spots. Just your own backyard, the quiet of just being out there is good, but you also need to go see truly wild spaces as well. And that's not just, you know, you said you went to a state park this weekend. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, national parks. That's my favorite thing to do. Um, But you really, there are places there that you can get off the beaten path. And that's really important for children as well to see these really wild spots that they might not be familiar with. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So I've alluded to the next one on our list several times uh, <laughs> being here in the great frozen North currently. <laughs> but since you just talked about this to a group of Girl Scouts, maybe you should uh, take this one. <laughs> so of course, John's talking about weather. Um, before we started recording, I was ribbing him a little bit th- about this as well. Um, but one of my favorite next to all models are bad. <laughs> One of my other favorite sayings is, you know, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people, <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, it's hot in Oklahoma in the summertime. I get that. It's awful hot. And there's only so much clothes you can take off before, you know, you get arrested. <laughs> but <laughs> especially <laughs> in the wintertime, you know, I mean, it's fine. It rained here today. We played out in it for a little while. It's okay. Like, kids need to experience, adults too, all kinds of weather. So just because it's cold outside, you know, we make clothes for that. You can still take your kids outside in the cold. Um, It doesn't have to, you don't have to wait for these perfect weekends. Nature's there all the time. And seeing nature in different stages, especially I love going outside in the winter. It's one of my favorite things because everything looks so different than it does, you know, in the springtime when you're outside all the time or in the summertime when you're out in the field, like it looks a lot different in the winter and experiencing those same places over different seasons gives you a better appreciation for the place. I think. Uh, Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I will say though, that if you're going to go out and do activities in the extreme hot or the extreme cold, that I think it's really important that you be prepared. Otherwise, you could get yourself into a very bad situation where fear would be a very legitimate response, like dehydration (laughs) or hypothermia. Yes. 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 That is absolutely true. And if you're only used to going outside when it's really pretty and nice outside, yes, (laughs) you need to be very aware of your surroundings. Obviously, um, our summer field camp, you know, we always, always, always have somebody that gets dehydrated and has to go to the hospital because they don't listen to us about drinking enough water. And, you know, the same thing with the cold. You could easily find yourself, especially in places that have changing weather conditions, because just because it's warm doesn't mean that, you know, a storm can't blow in that you weren't paying attention to. So you need to be prepared for all those eventualities um, just to be safe. But you learn that stuff the more you go outside. So Yeah, and I mean, the first time, the first few days... When I went out to field camp initially, you know, I said, okay, well, I'll take, you know, like two, two and a half liters <laughs> of water. And that worked pretty good in, until lunch. And then exactly. it was like, ooh. <laughs> and it's hard to imagine that you need to carry five liters of water out. Yeah, but, but you do. You do. It's a dry heat. <laughs> um, ex- yeah. Exactly. Like we tell people that all the time. Um One of my favorite sort of, we live outside of town and we have an acre, but then we back up to 80 acres that are undeveloped. And one of my favorite sort of times that we went out exploring in nature was my son was little, he was only three, and it had started to sleet. And we decided to go for a walk out in the 80 acres behind us. And it was so awesome because, you know, I was sitting there freaking out about him being too cold or anything, but he loved it. He still talks about it. And that was, you know, (laughs) two years ago. Um, But we went out and it was a real quick walk. We were out maybe 45 minutes at the most. But being out there in the sleet, there was so much noise from the sleet that the animals didn't hear us really so much. And we saw like a ton of deer that we'd never see back there because they always hear us coming. And, you know, stuff rattling around in the bushes. I'm sure it's just a possum or something like that. But 
you know, even at that young age, just being prepared because we all had, you know, all kinds of cold weather gear on, it it's a lasting impression. It obviously made a lasting impression on him and it was really exciting. So that's sort of one of those things like as long as you're prepared, you never know what's going to happen differently than before and it just enhances your experience of any place even just your backyard like it was for us yeah and i mean there's really clothing and gear for just about any situation (laughs) anywhere on earth Uh, granted not all of the expeditions were successful and some of the lessons that we learned were learned the very hard way at the expense of some very brave people exactly Uh, but our technology is getting much better and this is where someone like me has to be careful about not geeking out too much about equipment and technology of an entirely different kind of field technology. I know you're a bit of a field clothing nerd yourself. Oh, exactly. I'm just laughing because we could have an entire other podcast, I think, just talking about <laughs> like that kind of tech. Like tech and clothing is unbelievably advanced. You know, we're oh yeah. It's unreal and you know i buy books on this too and i'm yeah you're absolutely right i'm a huge tech nerd i'm trying to tone it down a bit but it's not gonna happen i'm sure all summer i'm just gonna talk about my you know 50 spf (laughs) shirt that i just bought and stuff like that (laughs) you're gonna you know spray yourself with water to show your friends that it really does dry in five minutes Exactly. Unbelievable. Revolutionary. Um, But that's interesting because one of the things that Dr. Scott talks about in his book is that what sets us apart uh, humans, what sets humans apart is basically because we're adaptable to all climates on Earth. Like we can go, we're one of the only species that can go anywhere and thrive, not just go anywhere, but can go anywhere and thrive. And so like as long as you're smart and prepared, There isn't anywhere you can't explore. And that goes for kids, too. I think we sort of, well, as I've said before, we kind of coddle our kids a little bit, but we're adaptable as humans, and that includes your children, too. So just go outside, no matter what. Yeah. And, I mean, there have been several studies that have shown how important it is, right, to actually do this. Right, exactly. Um, One of the big things that I sort of focus in on because this is something that I teach in my class. And, you know, we've talked about it on this show when we talked about sort of Carl Sagan telling you you should, you know, read books outside of your expertise. It's the same way with nature. Um, Creative people are the best scientists. It's not necessarily the best mathematicians or the best, you know, sciencey people. I feel like creative people are the best science scientist and it talks a lot about dr scott's book and these other books about the lack of creativity caused by this nature deficit and that's across all spectrums kids adults and everything and it can't be solved with like simulated nature experiences which i thought were really interesting there are a lot of studies new studies that have gone on you know if you have a desktop background that has a nature picture which mine always does It's not the same. It doesn't have the same benefit (laughs) as even viewing trees through a window. Not a parking lot, but trees or a patch of green grass or anything like that. Um, There was another study that said just prisoners in a prison have significantly less. It was like 30% or something high. Like sicknesses. Yes, sickness calls to the doctor if their cell window viewed trees instead of like the prison yard or no window. Hmm. This sounds kind of uh, very similar to a lot of graduate student offices (laughs) that I know of. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so true. Um, uh, They refer to our basement, you know, as the dungeon, obviously. And I thought about that today as I was walking around in our basement where I teach my class, so we had finals today too, and I thought that's I would, I would be so upset if I didn't have you know a seventh floor office window to look out of. I can't imagine. Um, there's a lot of stuff that says a lot of scientific research that says you know this access actually improves your focus, even though you think just mm. like you said earlier, John. You know you think that you have to do all this stuff and you can't take time to just sit, 
but actually you're a better performer if you take time to sit. <laughs> yeah, and this is something that I always struggle with and uh, am currently, I would say, in the midst of, <laughs> as it's a very busy time for me right now. And it's also simultaneously becoming very nice outside. Uh, so uh -huh. it's something that I'm trying to fight to do a little bit, a uh, little bit better at this year. So we'll see how that goes. So you should read about this process that I read about in both of these books. Um, and it's this Japanese, it's Shinrin Yoku, which is called forest bathing. And it says, as sort of tech exploded in the 80s and stuff, that these Japanese businessmen and people that white collar workers that worked in offices and stuff took to doing this forest bathing. And so just what it means is literally that you go out and you just sit in the forest. You leave all your electronics behind and you go out for the weekend, for a day, for 15 minutes, anything that you can to come back and improve your focus. And so it's this totally understood thing. Everyone does it. And it's this massive productivity thing, taking this time to not be productive, but yet be outside in nature makes them better at their jobs, which are highly, you know, highly technical and lots of tech and everything. It even helps that. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely see that. But on the flip side of the coin, there are some instances where I think tech can actually be really important to experiencing nature. Right. And we've talked a lot about that on this show already, right? We tech augmenting these natural experiments. You know, my use of iPads in the field is one of them. And there are all kinds of classrooms, you know, K through 12 classes that use technology to augment their nature experiences too. I don't know if you've heard of these, but there are these like Bluetooth microscopes. And oh. <laughs> yes, um, um, my friend has used them in her uh, pre-K classroom, but it's this Bluetooth microscope that you can go out and hold it up to something, a leaf, a bug, tree bark, and it broadcasts it to the iPads that all your students have, and it is awesome. <laughs> like, it, wow. it's so neat, and so there's not, like, some kids not getting in to see something that you're trying to look at because there's 15 kids and five of them can't see because you're all trying to crowd around. And that right. is a great use of tech to expand learning to students that, you know, might not, might've just missed out because they're not, you know, pushy enough to get in there to see that bug that's crawling or something. And I thought that was a really cool use of tech, especially for K through 12. Yeah, and I mean, even when I'm outside at night, if I'm walking home late because uh, I had so many things to do that I was at the office late or whatever the case may be, uh, every now and then I pull out my phone and open up Dark Sky and see, like, oh, what's that really bright thing? Is that is that Venus or wh where's Saturn? Is Saturn up tonight? And it's actually just uh, really nice to be able to pull that out, point the phone at the sky, and instantly say, oh, that's another planet and or even just the uh, the satellite tracker apps i know we were walking the other night and the space station at least we're pretty sure it was a space station i didn't have the uh, the app downloaded to track it i fixed that uh but when you watch satellites come over or the space station it's really <laughs> neat to to think you know that that's people that's that's us out there and that's it's a pretty neat experience that is absolutely true uh we used this when we were in new mexico camping and um last semester when we went to palo duro the same thing you know i'd see the students with their phones i'm like what are you guys doing and they all had you know google sky open and it was a really cool experience it's not what we were out there to do but it totally made the experience better and you know i used to look at lift off home all the time to look at the satellites that were going by or whatever and that is a really cool thought i never really thought of it like that to say you know that's you know, that's humanity out there. Technology got us there. But it's still, you know, out in nature. All of what we do is a part of the system, you know, not apart from the system. Yeah. And I mean, I've thought about uh, building before, and this is one of those projects that's on the list and haven't got around to it, of some kind of a globe uh, that would glow 
when the space station was overhead, it would get brighter the more directly overhead it was. So you could just set that on your shelf in your office and know that when it's <laughs> glowing, there are people floating above you moving very, very fast. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so there are lots of cool ways, I think, that tech can augment our experiences of nature and our respect for it. But what are some other ways maybe that you've heard of? So a lot of what I noticed, just because I try to spend a lot of time in national parks, is the use of tech in visitor centers. I mean, we're so used to it, like natural history museums and things, you know, there are these skeletons or there's this plaque or there's a poster. But one of the coolest, I was just talking about it today in class, one of the coolest visitor centers um, was at Tetons, so the Grand Tetons. And they had actually like these screens that were in the floor and you walked over them and they were sort of laid out like rivers and it was sort of like mimicking the rivers of the area. And they were these screens that would show like rivers, but then they'd also like flash up information too. And it was really cool because, you know, you're used to consuming a screen at eye level or above you or like in a movie theater. And it was sort of a flip, you know, you had to look down at the floor and it had all this information down there. And it was really cool. It was an, just got you thinking in a different way. And without the cool pictures of the river and, you know, the flashy sort of stuff that came along with the screens, I don't think you would have noticed that very much. Yeah, that sounds like a really interesting way of kind of giving you a different perspective. We've talked about before changing your angle on things and uh, walking on screens is kind of a weird way to interact with technology. Uh, Yes, exactly. Um, One thing that we do a lot of too, and this is sort of one of these like how do we get better things is there are a ton, obviously there are a ton of places like the Nature Conservancy and the Nature Conservancy does a really great job of being local and having a lot of info about your local area and, you know, your extension office from your state agricultural school also has a lot of info on your local area. And so my kiddo and I, a lot of times will be outside and we'll see, we've seen a snake before outside. And so we think about, you know, we like write down, what does that snake look like? Or what does that caterpillar look like? And then we'll take the iPad out, especially with like caterpillars or not so much snakes, (laughs) but caterpillars or like looking at little cocoons or something. And we'll take the iPad out and we'll try to find a picture of it. And then we will identify it and read about it right there while we're outside. That's the coolest thing. Like that's a great way that tech can augment your experience. There are also a lot of apps like, you know, birding apps. That's a big deal too. Um, that's talked about in this book. Uh, these nature apps that help you, you know, identify bird calls and then start to learn like bird language and things like that. Um, that's a great use of technology augmenting your experience instead of taking away from it. Yeah, I mean, before, you know, you would carry those uh, kind of rubber-backed field guides, the field guide to minerals, the field guide to birds. <laughs> now all of it's in iBooks on your iPad uh, <laughs> or just with Google. It's pretty incredible. And it's way better, too, because those books are huge and really heavy yeah, to and, carry around in your backpack. <laughs> well, yeah, and you can't search those books. And I know, you know, you might have problems fitting them in with all your moleskins as well in there <laughs> and field notebooks. <laughs> It's so true. I didn't want to bring it up, but you're absolutely right. Um, I, you know, I lived off those books when I was a kid. Like, I loved those big books. They had all these glossy photos and stuff. But yeah, you couldn't carry more than one or two of them. And so that's a really excellent way to, you know, take it with you, which we plan to do on our field trip, too. Yeah, and I know, I think I've heard somewhere that there's a Minerals and Thin Section app that's either in development or out. Have you heard about this? Oh, yes. This blows my mind. The hardest thing about our, you know, petrology classes, so these classes where we look at rocks under the microscope, was that, you know, we had this huge book, the Dear Howie and Zeusman, and it was a thousand pages, and it was massive. And now when I teach these classes, kids just whip out their phones, and they can even take pictures of what is in the microscope, (laughs) And then have stuff identify it for them, and it just breaks my heart. <laughs> but they can, they're exposed to a lot more this way, too. Yeah, I mean, it's much different than looking up, 
you know, trying to measure an angle and then looking it up and saying, oh, but that color doesn't match what I'm seeing. So, okay, I need to go back and maybe it's this, maybe it's this. It, it, it's cut down the time, but that's a whole other argument for another show of whether it's cut down any understanding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Um, it brings up an interesting point too, though, that we, we think of students now particularly, and we hear a lot of this at the university level, you know, students are digital natives. Students want to use technology. So I've always asked my students about this because I teach both senior level and freshman level courses. And overwhelmingly, my students would rather take a quiz on paper than they would to whip out their iPads and try to connect to a website and take a digital quiz and stuff. And we push this digital things and say, you know, this is how kids interact now. But it's not always true. I think we need to also give our kids a little more credit for understanding the world's, you know, the world around them. And, you know, they don't, some of them realize they don't always have to be plugged in. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of research about that as well, which, you know, we'll link to in the show notes. Yeah, the show notes will have links to everything that we've talked about. So be sure you check those out. If you don't normally check out the show notes, and we try to put pretty much everything in there that we mentioned. (laughs) I try to catch that when we (laughs) do the little bit of editing on this. So We've said that even as geoscientists, sometimes we're not always great at getting outside. And I know you said that there was a hundred ways in one of these books to get better at this. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, in the back of Last Child in the Woods, it's a, it's a whole section, you know, that's notes from the field. And it talks about the movement of people getting kids outside, which is great. And, you know, this is... I'm hoping this isn't just a small niche that I'm plugged into because I'm really interested in this, but it seems like a lot of people are starting to talk about this now. Um, And then he just has, and this is great. I mean, if you don't even want to read this book for all the studies and all the research, buy it for these last pages because it's full of awesome stuff and it's nature activities for kids and families. And it's just a hundred, a paragraph or less things that you can do. It has, he has lists of books, and most of them are those tomes that we were just speaking of, <laughs> but a whole lot of other sort of more kid-friendly stuff. So, like, what's an example of one of these suggestions that he has? Uh, so, one of them, and I, I choose this one because I think it's funny, is he says, go for gross. <laughs> go for and, gross. <laughs> yeah. And he talks about... Um, you know, letting your kid get dirty, which I struggle with too, because I notice I just instinctively say stuff like, don't get in that mud. There's no right. reason that I can't let him get into the mud, you know? <laughs> like, it's not going to kill him. It's not going to hurt anything. So that's one thing he says that sort of I try to take to heart. Um, one of them, and this is, you know, just for you, is... It just says read. It says take your book outside and read. That's it. Like that's one of the suggestions. Um, yeah, I mean says, that sounds like a great day to me. Uh, yeah, exactly. He says reading stimulates the ecology of the imagination, especially if it's done outside. Hmm. I thought that was All really right. cool. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we should probably wrap it up there before we get... Uh, too long <laughs> we've been doing a little bit better about this but uh, before we go to everybody's favorite segment of the show we actually have a little bit of feedback yay yes so this comes from listener hannah and it was with regards to our note show which i know you took to heart and really did uh, order those field notes oh, i think I sure. as we were recording I sure did. And I got them last week and I love them so much. I've already got like four pages filled up in one of them. They're the best little notebooks. Oh, absolutely. But, but well, this (laughs) comment was in regards to highlighting. And Hannah said that sometimes she actually does find highlighting useful. Uh, For example, using colors to help remember where things are on a page. And I will say that though I've never found the colors helpful, I can definitely relate to being able to visualize where something is on a page in a book. And that's one thing that I feel is a little bit lost in electronic textbooks. That's really true. I feel like I have that photographic thing too. And I as well do not necessarily subscribe to 
different colored highlighters, but I do notice a thing I do a lot more, mostly because I can't bring myself to deface a page, is that I do a lot more of the sort of the little removable flags on different spots and pages. So I guess I could see oh, where yeah. highlighters are sort of the same thing. Yeah. And I mean, if you have a visual mind and color really is a trigger for you, uh, maybe that would be a great technique to use. So if anybody else uses that technique or some other technique, uh, let us know because we're all about uh, trying new things and helping other people try new things, right? Yep, exactly. That is exactly true, especially if it has to do with notebooks because we love those. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I think that means that it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Yay! Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> So I'm not as good as finding at finding like weird and funny papers as you are, John. Um, <laughs> well, you, you have to be working on a dissertation to have, you know, these ample amounts of free time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm so far removed now from that. <laughs> um, and as you can probably tell by the length of time I've been talking about this subject, this is sort of like one of my crusades in life now. And so I chose um, this paper written by Janet Diamond, and she's from Tasmania, University of Tasmania in Australia. And if anything, it's great because, you know, there's all these british spellings in it but it's called <laughs> green school grounds as sites for outdoor learning barriers and opportunities and so it's from 2005 but you know nature's been around forever so it's not really out of style or anything <laughs> right so this is the idea of taking <laughs> classrooms uh, outside to either learn about nature or just having class outside right exactly um when you get into education literature like this in terms of you know studies and everything it's so different than the data that we're used to dealing with so it kind of is a different format to these sort of papers and so many things are just humans reacting to stuff but that's exactly what she does is she looks at green outdoor spaces that schools have either just implemented or have had in place for five or ten years and talks about to teachers and principals and even parents, um, especially parents who helped make the green spaces. And there's a lot of info in this paper that we don't have time to go into, but I just sort of wanted to talk about it because it's a wide, it's a large study in terms of wide socioeconomic statuses between all the schools she looked at. So really rich schools and really poor schools a wide age range of the children, a wide age range of the teachers involved and sort of different levels of this green classroom. Like, are you just now setting it up? Has it been there for a while? And basically she just interviews everyone about it. And it's just that. What makes you want to use it and what is keeping you from using it? Well, yeah, the number of respondents for some of these questionnaires uh, is really pretty staggering for social science. I would say that in is greater than it is in a lot of papers uh, that we've looked at in social science as when we were considering Fun Paper Friday papers, right? Oh, right, exactly. Um, and so that's, I don't know if it lends more weight to it because I'm not super familiar, you know, with their metrics, but that's what I thought as well when I saw it, you know, on the orders of, you know, 100 or more respondents to these. And I think that might speak to the fact that, you know, lots of people like myself have really strong feelings about this, um, about outdoor learning. So, yeah. And I will say though, I mean, obviously I like the idea of it and you like the idea of being outside, but that's not the view that everybody took. <laughs> yes. There were some things that I just found really, really, really sad about it. Um, so she goes into what are the barriers of using these green school grounds as outdoor classrooms? The first thing, which is something that we already talked about, is fear and concern about young people's health and safety. But she points to the fact that a lot of the previous literature said that this is a main concern. But the people she talked to, and you have to remember, these are schools that already have these green school grounds in place, said that this wasn't even on their radar as a barrier to using the outdoor space. That's fascinating to me, considering today's lawyer-dominated 
liability concerned Ex- society. Exactly. Exactly. And which is something, you know, we should get away from. But that's exactly what they say in here is that they understood these risks and they were willing to accept and or manage them. And I thought that was great. You know, there's a lot of covering your butt legally that goes on. But these people that have green spaces already in their schools say they didn't really care about that. But a big barrier for those people were teachers' confidence and expertise in teaching and learning outdoors. Interesting. So the the teachers were uncomfortable using these spaces? Exactly. And it said that the teachers who use traditional classrooms, like when they were taught, are the ones that are sort of more stuck in their ways of not using them now when they're teaching. And I thought that was really interesting. And one of the... um, one of the parents comments on this here and says, you know, it's not always obvious how to use these spaces, especially when you have a standard routine and you've always taught in a classroom. And that parent goes on to say, you know, when you get caught in your little square boxes, you stay in your little square boxes. And a teacher agreed with that sentiment and said, it's just easier and safer maybe to teach the old way in the classroom. Well, and I know this isn't a concern uh, in all societies, But here we have to deal with teachers that are trying to prepare for standardized testing and have a very tight (laughs) curriculum and really no room to expand or to kind of go with the flow on something that their students are finding very engaging and that's working really well for them. Uh, Exactly, which is a whole nother show. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. In and of itself is addressing going over that. That was um that was one of the barriers too in this study as well. And so it says the requirements of school curricula. Um so how you can get around that, and the study points out, I thought this was great. So this is directly from the paper. Uh under this requirements of school curricula. It says participants indicated that too often little teaching is happening beyond the obvious subjects of science. Some teachers think, this is math time, I can't go outside, or they might not see the benefits of it. And some people Hmm. think that there are only things you can teach outside of science, right? They don't realize that there are probably 3,000 places in that elementary curriculum that we could be out there doing stuff. This lack of obvious curricular links is a key barrier that limits outdoor learning. And so I know... My friend who teaches pre-K struggles with this as well because she will take her students outside and she will get questioned about it. Why were you guys outside? You were supposed to be doing language at this time. Well, you know, she's a very proponent of outside learning and people can't even realize where you can incorporate just being outside in the curriculum. Obviously, you can count a thousand different things outside, so there's no reason why you wouldn't do math outside just like science. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can even think of some examples, maybe from literature where going outside uh, could tie in really well to whatever, you know, they were reading, depending on what level you were at. Uh, exactly. Um, you could obnoxiously say, you know, there's never been anything written about nature. So why would you do that? <laughs> but it's exactly right. I mean, even in high school, and I remember this from my high school, when we were reading specifically like nature related poems or stuff we would we would go outside anyway just if it was a nice day and it says in here that some teachers are afraid of you know losing control of their students once they go outside and that's just another one of those fear things that I think if you just make that the norm then you're not going to have those problems yeah no I I agree and you know, we were talking a little bit before the show, and I said, yeah, you know, writers and artists are known for their hatred of going out and being with nature when they work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I think that uh, wraps up Fun Paper Friday, but if you want to send us a suggestion for Fun Paper Friday or have any comments on this show or other shows, how can they get a hold of us, Shannon? Well, they can send us those audio comments or text comments, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com, or they can put it on our website, don'tpanicgeocast.com. As always, we're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo, 
John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. Right. We look forward to hearing from you. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.